So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week weekday wherever you get your podcasts when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. Here's what we've got coming up. I think the perpetrators are still in control. They are pulling the strings. They are telling us how things should happen. I don't think that's fair. Three years on and with no end in sight, we catch up with a victim of one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in British history. Plus... Filling a stocking full of oatmeal and using that in the bath, that can be very soothing. How do you get pregnant when penetration is painful? And Ollie Peart refines his diet. That's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. And thank you so much to everybody who's been in touch expressing surprise, pleasant surprise, at hearing me presenting Saturday Live on BBC Radio 4. I am choosing to interpret your surprise as support for my career, having listened to many of my podcasts over the years, rather than outright shock that uh, I've got a job. It is only a temporary job. I'm in the middle of a six-week stint on the show. But if you download the BBC Saturday Live podcast right now, then you can catch up and you can hear me talking to Clive Myrie and Colin Jackson and Kate Humble and Danny Cipriani. Um, So, you know, if you like me, there's a lot more me on the web this month. Just type BBC Saturday Live into whatever app you're using to listen to this. Um, Anthony May on Instagram, I'm ollie.man there, says, Ollie, I'm loving hearing you on one of my other favourite podcasts. Sounds like you're having a ball. I love that phrase. It's so Cinderella. My grandma says that. Uh, Over on my Facebook wall, facebook.com slash ollieman, Bob Bobbins has reached out. Extraordinary name. Can it be real? Uh, Saying, Ollie, I'm loving you on Saturday Live. I even turned over from Radcliffe and McConey for you. No need. Um, Just get the podcast. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, here on this pod... Lots of you getting in touch to say you enjoyed my interview with David McKelvey last month, the private prosecuting cop. Um, Sean Butler on X, at The Modern Man, uh, says, Ollie, I just listened to this and feel absolutely despondent. If a private police officer with decades of experience and a mountain of evidence while catching the burglars in the act can't get the police to prosecute, literally what hope have we, the public, got? Uh, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff in the news since we recorded that interview, actually, about shoplifting. Obviously, what David was talking about was even more serious than that. Um, Andre, by contrast, I'd suggest, 
uh, feels equally hopeless, but I guess from a different perspective. He says, for me, private prosecution is one more step towards authoritarianism, where nobody has anything and the government has everything. Why has the Home Office washed its hands of responsibility? Well, look, if you're interested in that intersection between the legal process and the have and have nots, then do stay tuned. There'll be much for you to think about in today's middle feature, too. Uh, on a very separate matter, Manfan David from Australia says, Ollie, I had to write in after listening to the anonymous foxhole questionnaire last month who contacted you about his late onset retrospective jealousy. Uh, yeah, do you remember this? This is the guy who wrote in and basically said, me and my partner discussed our ex-partners and I was fine with it, but now I'm consumed with jealousy about her previous partners. Um, David says, that listener bravely asked his question. I want him to know that he is not the only person to have experienced this. A similar thing happened to me after nearly 20 years with my wife. We'd openly discussed our pasts when we first started dating, but it wasn't until last year that I started having mental images and feelings of jealousy. Your listener may be suffering from a form of OCD called Pure O, where your mind is bombarded by unpleasant and unwanted thoughts. I would recommend reading Rose Bretesher's book, Pure, in which she paints a vivid picture of life with Pure O. The thoughts may never go away, but their grip loosens when you realise it's just your brain being weird. Um, David, thank you for sharing that. Obviously, I'm sure if Alex were here, she'd say, well, we can't diagnose from afar um, what that correspondent has going on in his head. But um, it's really useful to hear what worked for you. I love it when we kind of unearth a marginal experience, a seemingly marginal experience that is actually a part of many more people's lives than perhaps we realise. Um, OK, just before we get going with this month's show, though, we must pause briefly to thank our sponsors for this episode, Readly. Have you encountered Readly before? I am genuinely a huge fanboy of their product. It's sort of like, uh, as Spotify is for your ears, Readly is for your eyes. And it is such a great experience. You get thousands of national and international magazines on there for $9.99 a month. I now read Fast Company from the States using Readly. T3 is on there. I love gadgets, so I read that. And also some things that I just frankly wouldn't buy, like the Radio Times, you know, I wouldn't buy a paper TV listings magazine, but I do love their celebrity interviews and features. Uh, as you can tell, I'm genuinely an enthusiast for Readly. I told my mother-in-law about them uh, over the summer because she was in hospital for a while. And seriously, that two weeks in the Lister Hospital Stevenage flew by. She was doing good housekeeping, The Observer, Heat. She was mainlining like 10 titles a day. It's just a great app if you love magazines in particular, which I'm going to guess you do because you have, after all, downloaded a magazine podcast. Um, and it's incredible value anyway. But for you man fans, it's just got even better because Readly are offering you an exclusive three-month free trial of unlimited newspapers and magazines. That's right, I said free. Uh, to get yours, go to readly.com slash man. That's R-E-A-D-L-Y dot com forward slash M-A-N-N. Uh, after your free trial, yes, they will switch you up to the paid plan, but you can cancel whenever you like. There's no pressure. Uh, and with family sharing, you can also share your account on up to five devices. So do it now. Entertain yourself all the way through to the other side of Christmas for free. Readly.com slash man. Uh, and remember the slash man because that's how they know we sent you. Readly.com slash M-A-N-N. Uh, right, coming up on this month's show, you will learn. 
how to use the Nova scale. You'll learn what the splash method is. It's nothing to do with Daryl Hannah, and you'll learn why you might want to inject Botox into your vagina. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist, sponsored by Dirty. Your trends tested with Ollie Peart. Uh, hello, Ollie. Hey, how are you doing? I'm just enjoying the delicious irony that we're going to be talking about the relative uh, values of healthy and unhealthy food, mm-hmm. and yet you and I went to a Greasy Spoon cafe last week and ate pretty much only bread. Fried bread as well, uh, and almost certainly processed, and sausages, and bacon, and baked beans. I would have paid an extra 50p for a better quality sausage, but that's me. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right, actually. It's ironic because your challenge for the month was to investigate ultra-processed foods. You were supposed to have been spending the last four weeks not eating any. Yeah. Manfan Ashley in Southampton challenged you to spend a month avoiding ultra-processed foods. So let's (laughs) let's go through, first things first, now you've looked into it. What is ultra-processed food? What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything because there is no definition of what ultra-processed foods actually are. However... If it is a food that has five or more ingredients in it, some people say seven or more ingredients in it, comes in a packet and has at least one ingredient that you don't know what is, then it's probably ultra-processed food. One of the things that I saw online about this was someone saying, like the the Idiot's Guide version to this term, is if you look at the back of a packet and it's got things in it that you don't have in your kitchen cupboard, then it's ultra-processed. Yeah, it was popularised by uh, Chris Van Tulliken. Do you know him? You uh-huh. know that name? The Doctor? It's ringing a vague bell. I, I flicked yeah. through the weekend supplement. He has a book called Ultra-Processed People, and it's basically all about ultra-processed food and why you should avoid it and why you shouldn't eat it. And he kind of has, you know, basically labelled things like your white bread and uh, other things that you might find in your cupboard, and uh, you know, that you buy on a regular basis, even like things like baked beans and stuff like that, as ultra-processed. And he's basically saying, avoid it! Okay, so in the absence of a universal definition, how can you tell whether you're eating an ultra-processed food versus a processed food or a non-processed food? Well, there is um, a scale called the the Nova scale. It's basically a classification of food scales, and there's there's four of them, four being what they consider ultra-processed food. And you can go in there and you can kind of search it. You can search for a, a food at world.openfoodfacts.org and you can um, find out whether or not it's processed or ultra-processed. And that gives World. you... world.openfoodfacts.org. Right, I'm doing Forward slash Nova. Okay, so like... slash Nova. N-O-V-A. N-O-V-A, yeah, yeah. Something that I love but I know is ultra-processed is a Cinnamon Graham. Cinnamon? Love them. Is it in there? Oh, hold on. No, they've changed the name, haven't they? Even though no one wanted to call a cereal Graham. Um, it was still easier to remember than what it's called now. What's it called? It used to be Cinnamon Toast Crunch, then it's Cinnamon Graham's. What? Curiously Cinnamon. That's what it's called. What? Oh, curiously. Is that? Tell me it finds it. Here we are. Yes, it's found it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a four. Okay, quite right. Wow. I know I'm doing myself damage with those. Okay. I, I used to okay, love ricicles. Then... Do they still do those? Okay. No, I'm not going to search for a pickled cucumber because that's like a sort of semi-healthy stack. I'm looking for a two there. <gasps> Go on. Interesting. Go on. Three. See? This is the thing. That's quite. That is interesting. I wouldn't have thought because I just thought what's in it is just salt and sugar and dill and yeah, cornichons and stuff are coming up as four. There might be certain preservatives in there that make it make them consider it more of a processed food than perhaps you were expecting. I mean, this is. I'm searching for Kalamata olives now because my life's over if I can't have those. But you could make your own cornichons. Three, three for Kalamata olives. I'm all right with that. Yeah. Bring it on. (laughs) But still. 
It's not a whole food, is it? It's interesting. No. They've got so for example, a bag of baby carrots, obviously, that's a one. Yeah, of course. But a, a what I think of as quite healthy, sort of prepared chopped carrot, carrot rapee, mm. four. No, I just thought that's chopped carrot and vinegar. There are there there are other things which are surprising as well, like a wholemeal loaf. You know, the Nova scale would identify that, so it's just a standard Hovis wholemeal loaf. Uh, the Nova scale would identify that as a four. But it's got a nutritional right. score of A, which means it's very nutritious, but it's got a processed score of four. And this is the thing, you know, not all processed foods are created equal. So what was step one in your mission to avoid ultra-processed foods? Okay, well, step one was um, go on holiday to Portugal because you actually set me this challenge just before I was about to go on holiday, which was really annoying and inconvenient. Yeah, where they're famous for, like, beer, cheese (laughs) and processed pork. Yeah, but but I just so happened, right? So there's complete coincidence, but I I went... I went on holiday to the Algarve, uh, and they had the Mediterranean Diet Festival on. Oh, wow, perfect. And this this set me off on what I consider to be the right route, because one of the diets that is cited if you want to try and avoid processed foods is the Mediterranean diet, because it's full of whole foods. So, you know, legumes, I love that word, legumes, it's grains, uh, you, know, you know, seeds, nuts, fruit, veg, all that kind of stuff. So this was perfect for me to go around the, the, the Mediterranean diet festival and see what kind of foods are on offer. And it is predominantly whole foods and fish and that kind of stuff. However... Also in Portugal, they have the pastel donata, which is a custard tart. And there is absolutely Mm. no way on earth that I'm not eating one of those on holiday. I had three a day. So I ate three pastel donatas a day whilst I was on holiday and I had a lovely time. But when I got home, I did start... (laughs) When I got home, I I did regret that decision. Yeah. I was away for for five days. I was away for five days. So it was was basically just being really conscious of of when we're going into the supermarket. Effectively, all I was doing was trying not to buy anything in a packet, even vegetables. So even if the vegetables were in a plastic bag, I was like, nope, I'm going to make sure I buy all the vegetables um, that aren't in a plastic bag. I mean, that's not at and all when, related to processed food. It's just that that was my way of kind of dealing with it. Yeah, and when you started looking into what is inside uh, some of the foods that you normally buy, what was the most shocking thing that you discovered? One of, one of the things that I found um, most surprising, I suppose, is the amount of food that is considered not necessarily ultra-processed, but processed. So I mentioned it before, but things like baked beans. Like, I don't think of mm. baked beans as being unhealthy. Perhaps they might have a little bit more salt in than you would like. But you can yeah, get I lo- th- exactly. That's how I, I think it's beans, tomatoes, salt and sugar. Well, it, it, it is that, the salt and the sugar. You know, it's people thinking that just because it's a processed food, it's got something in it that I shouldn't, I probably should eat less of. You know, um, uh, predominantly things like salt and sugar, but also some of those chemicals that I can't even pronounce and wouldn't begin to even try and pronounce that you had never heard of before. And avoiding those things... It, you know, is probably a good thing because it will stop me from maybe developing a disease that I don't want to. But one of our listeners reached out to help me on this because, uh, you know, I needed a bit of advice. Jenny Chapman uh, happens to be a biologist and she is studying and looking into ultra-processed foods. Uh, she wants uh-huh. to understand the health implications of them, if they are problematic and and if so, why? And what she found is, is that uh, ultra-processed foods, basically, there is no evidence to fully back up that they are bad for, bad for your health. And the reason is the studies that have been done are not what they call a randomised controlled trial. So what they've done is they've given 
some people, so 10 people, some uh, ultra processed foods to eat for the course of a, um, a month or so. And then other people, things that are not ultra processed foods, things like quinoa salad and whole foods and all of that kind of stuff. And then they've tried to then work out if they had better or worse health outcomes by, by following them for the months and the years afterwards. But the problem is, and this is the problem that's been sort of highlighted is that they didn't compare like for like and what she means by that is the people that were given the whole foods the things like the quinoa salads and that kind of stuff that's obviously healthy but the people that were given the ultra processed food were actually given food which was more unhealthy yeah but what's a healthy processed food well this is the thing just to sort of give you a comparison it would be like um the difference between a homemade lasagna and a pre-packaged shop-bought lasagna Mm. you could buy a low-fat, low-salt, pre-packaged, processed lasagna from a from a shop. But then you could make a homemade one and you might put more salt, more butter, more everything in it. You could have a processed lasagna in it that you could buy in a, in a shop and it could be healthier than your homemade one because you've absolutely loaded it up with butter and cream and salt. So they're not like for life. Oh, I see. In these studies, they haven't compared... You know, it would be like, okay, right, you eat pro- you eat ultra-processed food, here's a Snickers, and you eat whole food, here's a carrot. They're not comparable to one another. Clearly, one is less healthy than the other. The thing is, though, regardless of what modern research might say, I think we sort of instinctively know, don't we, that we've evolved to eat natural food. Processed food has only existed for 100 years. So it, it makes sense that although it's triggering all the same taste receptors and we think, oh, this is salty, this is sugary, this is good, it obviously isn't what our bodies are designed to consume. Well, this is another point that Jenny kind of raised. And it's instead of looking at individual foods, actually what you need to look at is is the diet as a whole. And ultra-processed foods and processed foods can form part of that. It's like anything. You, I mean, you hear this a million and one times. It doesn't matter what kind of diet trend comes around the corner. It will always be like, you just need a balanced diet. The best diet advice example she gave me was from a chap called Michael Poulin, who was an author, who said uh, that your diet should be basically eat food, not too much, and mostly plants. Like, that's the best advice she could give to anybody in terms of sort of planning their diet out. But there isn't a direct correlation to people eating ultra-processed foods and it being detrimental to their health. The thing is, is that ultra-processed foods are very, very convenient. And that means that the type of person that's likely to eat ultra-processed foods likely has other lifestyle things going on in their life that make them less healthy. They might be more stressed at work. They might So they're very, very time poor, which means they make, you know, potentially bad sort of food and other health decisions. They might, you know, all of those kinds of things. They might be drinking alcohol to, or smoking to help them deal with, you know, the stresses of them being very time poor. I often say this to my father-in-law, who's got this thing of like, I'd never trust a fat doctor. <laughs> <laughs> he always says like, oh, he's telling me to have a healthy diet, but look at him. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but he's got a really stressful job. Like, I'm sure he knows that he shouldn't be eating a wrap that he's picked up from Tesco as his lunch and mm. his five minutes standing in the corridor. Yeah. But that's life as a doctor, isn't it? Well, exactly, yeah. And he's probably, you know, looking after other people. And then in the very little time that he has, he's making very poor diet decisions. But the reality is, if you decide one day that you want to have a pot noodle for your lunch, it's fine. Just don't do it every day. Yeah, okay. But what can you do every day? What's been a good non-ultra-processed snack that you've been enjoying? Um, I I really love tomatoes. So tomatoes with a handful of walnuts. I love that. That's actually really delicious. Tomatoes with a handful of walnuts. Yeah, really nice. Like, How do you prepare the tomatoes? You take them off the vine if they're on a vine or out of the packet if they're in a packet, Ollie. It's not that hard. You just bite into a tomato like an apple? Yeah. 
and then have oh, a walnut, or, or, walnut chaser. Or cherry tomatoes, just pop them in your mouth. Like little sweets, bit of walnut. Yeah. Honestly, really, it's really lovely. It's so, so nice. But there are things that might surprise you. You might think are processed but aren't processed. And one of those is ready-salted crisps. You can eat ready-salted crisps. That's not an ultra-processed food because it's just salt and potato. Well, surely that depends on the brand, though, right? Monster Munch does not grow on a tree. Well, clearly Monster Munch is a processed product, isn't it? Yes, I'm talking about crisps. I don't know. I mean, it's in the shape of a monster's foot, yeah. but it's still just salt and potato, okay, theoretically. Yeah, okay. uh, I mean, uh, uh, a Pringle obviously <laughs> has no relation to a, to a potato, no, no, I no, think no. I can say without being I'm, a seed. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about crisps that are quite clearly sliced from a potato. A high-quality potato crisp. A high-quality potato crisp. But if you go for any other flavours, then you're on dangerous ter- territory. That's more likely to be an ultra-processed food because it's likely to have some kind of Mm. preservative in it. Because if a potato comes out the ground tasting like prawn cocktail, you've probably got a bad potato there. Although, that would be dreamy. I love prawn cocktail crisps. It's a bit like, um, you know those grapes that they've engineered now to taste like uh, candy floss? No, I did not know this. I think they're Israeli. You can buy them in Tesco anyway. And they're, they're... they taste like candy floss, but it isn't a pro- it's not they haven't added a chemical. It's just a new breed of grape they've developed that's naturally ultra sweet. And it tastes like candy it, floss. It reminds me of an episode of The Simpsons where he develops a thing called tomaco completely by accident, which is a cross between a tobacco <laughs> yeah, and tomatoes. It's like that. Highly addictive tomatoes. This is the thing, isn't it? I mean this is maybe this is a trend for a few years' time for the zeitgeist, I don't know. But that that uh like crossover of foods creating what is something that's healthy but tastes processed just seems completely bonkers to me and terrifies me. What's breakfast when you're not doing ultra processed? Processed, incidentally. So if you, you need to look really carefully at things like cereals. Some mueslis are actually um, processed or ultra-processed. They will have some kind of preservative in it, so you do need to check that. The one that isn't is shredded wheat. Shredded wheat is 100% wheat. That's it. It's got nothing else in it. So I've been eating uh, uh, shredded wheat in the morning or porridge oats. Porridge oats are absolutely fine, obviously, which I was kind of fine with. It's I eat shredded wheat anyway. It's kind of fine. It's boring, though, isn't it? Like, And also, we're just at that time of year where it's, it's all right now, just the dying days, you know, early days of autumn, dying days of summer in January. Can you imagine? Shredded wheat every day. You get up in the dark and cold. Get an egg. A porridge is nice in, in, in the winter. Why not porridge? Mm. You wouldn't eat that. An egg. That's yeah. That's a good. Egg's kind of fine. The other thing I was meaning to say to you, ironically, again in the greasy spoon, is that you do appear to have lost some weight recently. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know if that's from the previous challenge where we got you to do lots of <laughs> micro uh, improvements to yourself. Yeah, um, <laughs> or whether it was from this. No, but has it made a difference? It has made a difference. Yeah, I have changed nothing apart from thinking more carefully about what I'm eating and basically not eating you know, things that are loaded with sugar and that kind of stuff. And I have lost weight, yeah. I've lost a couple of pounds, actually. And, uh, yeah, I feel good for it. So I'll probably, you know, it's not many of these challenges that I keep I keep going with, but I think this one, I will. I'll just watch my diet a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, well, it would be mental <laughs> if after just two weeks you are like, I'm never going to eat a carrot again. Fuck it, I'm going to stuff my face with frankfurters. Breakfast Twix. <laughs> Lunch pot noodle. <laughs> Dinner bangers and mash. Yes, absolutely. Smash. Yeah, smash, yeah. <laughs> Not mashed potato. That's way too healthy. Let's stir some liquid in powder. Here's your challenge for next month. It comes from Anya in West London, who sounds like the kind of person you might find in a Whole Foods shop, I think. Definitely in West London, yeah. Chiswick or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, turn them green. She says, I would like to be able to give some money to charity, but do so guilt-free. I've heard so many bad stories in the news about how our donations these days are spent or how long it takes to get to the people who need it. So I'd like to challenge Ollie 
to look at how to make the most effective change happen this winter. Fix charity. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose the trend is a bit nebulous, isn't it? The trend is, I suppose, depressingly, that charities have corporatized and you don't know whether the money is reaching the people you want it to. But that kind of is a trend, isn't it? Like... I'm aware of that as well. Ever since they, the so-called like chuggers, you know, the charity muggers, stop you in the street and ask you for money, you know they're being paid. Mm. There's this feeling that, should I be giving to small charities? Should I be looking online? Or is it still a case that I should be giving money to the to the big charities because it does ultimately get to help people? Yeah, there's a, there's always a drive to do something for the homeless over the, sort of the, the winter period, isn't there? I don't, I don't know if yes. that's going to reach them in time now. I mean, I don't, I don't know when those campaigns start. About now, probably, I guess. Yeah, you're right. I always think this. Like, people always... And of course it's a good thing to give money to homeless charities. It always is. But I'm just, nonetheless, you think everyone does it at Christmas. Like, there's always that thing, isn't it? Volunteer in your local soup kitchen mm. on Christmas Day. But And yes, <laughs> what about the rest of the year? Yeah. And is there enough time if you fundraise for one of those charities for it to reach people on the streets? Yeah, and actually, I see quite a lot of people uh, doing sort of charitable things on, like, TikTok and YouTube and stuff like that. Like, asking for money to... Perhaps sort of they that they consider more direct action. That's the phrase, isn't it, that's used? Direct action. Yes. Give me the money, I'll sort it out. Yeah, and if that's a better way to go, or whether... Because you, you don't really know who you're giving it to then either, do you? No. You're just trusting the person you don't know. Yeah, they're basically saying, I'll cut out of the middle, man. Give me your cash. I'll go and sort them out. Yeah, but who are you? Interesting. Okay, the future of charity with Ollie Pitt <laughs> coming up in our November edition. Before we move any further, we should pause to thank our sponsors for the Zeitgeist, Dirty. Yeah, they do functional mushrooms in a whole host of different ways. You can get matcha, coffee, you can even get it just on its own to mix into other drinks. Yes, I've. have you tried that? Have you tried the lion's mane powder? I have. What do you, what do you reckon? Because we've been talking before in the previous months about the uh, mushroom coffee that they do, mm-hmm. which, as we've said before, is, is great because it's like an instant coffee without the crashes and jitters of coffee. But it does have that instant coffee taste. The other option is you can just take a little spoonful of the lion's mane powder, which is so pure and potent, and just mix it in with your normal daily coffee without any mushroomy taste. I, I do recommend the uh, just the coffee that they do. That yeah. doesn't give you the spike. That doesn't give you the jitters. That no. is something that keeps Focus. you... Focus. Absolutely. Dirty creates delicious super blends and... They've got functional mushrooms and other adaptogens in them. They're so easy to make, and you can try them by going to dirtyworld.com and using the code MAN to get 10% off. That's D-I-R-T-E-A-W-O-R-L-D.com and use the code MAN, M-A-N-N, to get 10% off your first order today. Thank you very much, Holly Pitts. Cheers, Holly. Coming up next, we return to the post office scandal. But first time for our record of the month. It's by British indie songstress Flower of Love with a V. Uh, This is called Next Best Exit and it's out now. Sometimes we hit a nerve with our middle features on this show, 
one of our interviews will sort of take on a life of its own, and you guys will remember it for months or years after we made the show, which is always a really delightful thing to see. It's kind of why we do this podcast. And that is certainly the case for our 2020 feature, Justice by Numbers, in which you may recall I interviewed Ali and Sarah, a couple who got caught up in the post office scandal. And it seems like basically every time the post office scandal comes up again in the news, uh, most recently just last week when some Scottish victims of the scandal had their convictions quashed on appeal, a whole bunch of you man fans get in touch and you post our original episode on social media and you say to your followers, this is a great explainer of the post office scandal if you've never heard about it before. Or you'll write to me and you'll thank us and you'll say, Ollie, it was your show that helped me understand what this massive miscarriage of justice was from a human perspective, what it was all about. So we so appreciate you doing that. And the other thing that you have written in to ask over the years is what happened next? What happened to Sarah and Ali? Did they get compensated? Did their conviction get overturned. Well, uh, we've kept in touch with them. And today, you're going to find out. But first of all, just to remind you of their story and where we got up to last time, we're now going to replay the full feature that we first put out in 2020. So even if you've got no idea what I'm talking about when I say the post office scandal, you will do in half an hour's time. And then you'll hear our catch up from 2023. So when we first met Sarah and Ali, uh, a married couple with kids living in the suburbs of London, I started by asking Sarah how she and Ali first met. My dad owned a franchise business and he was working for my father. What was the what, business? Um, it was a chicken business. Oh, okay. Like a fried chicken shop. Yeah, a fried uh -huh. chicken shop. And basically just met there. I used to go into in my lunchtime just to help out. Did you catch each other's eyes or was it more of a slow burn than that? It was funny because um, he actually called me from work and I had just been to the shop to pick things up. And he said to me, can you please write down this number? So I said, yeah, sure, I'll write down this number. And I thought it was probably just another supplier that I have to call back or whatever. And he said, oh, that's my number. I said, right. And he said to me, I'm finishing work late tonight, so please give me a call. And I was like, right. And I was a bit baffled because I didn't see it coming. Uh -huh. and, and I was just like, what? And then in the past, I'd helped him get a phone card to call his mum abroad and stuff. And I thought, and I told my mum, oh, he just told me to call him. She said, oh, he probably needs another phone card or something. And I went, yeah. And my friends were like, no, it seems a little bit more than that. <laughs> um, and yeah, anyway, so I, I, I did call him that night. And I remember talking to him for hours. And after that, we started seeing each other. And then three months down the line, told my parents about him and then got engaged. And a year later, we were married. My father gave me a flat after we got married and said to me, sort of like, that's your little bit of income. And I said to my dad, look, I just want to sell it and sort of like invest it in a house. And my dad said to me, well, how about you invest it in a house and a business? So I said, what? Like I did say chicken shop. Um, and he said to me, no, I want a guaranteed income for you because some shops do well, some shops don't. And I'm trying to get you sort of like guaranteed income and a secure business. So I said, fine. So I said to him, what? what do you suggest? And he said to me, a post office. And I was like, really? And he said to me, yeah. He goes to me, a friend of mine's relative is selling a post office and it's doing really well. And I think it will be the perfect thing for both of you. I did know things about business because I had done a business uh, management degree, but I still didn't know much about post offices apart from the one that I visited <laughs> locally now and again. Did you think it 
sounded like a good idea. I liked the fact that it was a secure income and I thought that's great. And I thought, yeah, let's go for it. So yeah, I'd only been in the country for three or four years. So I knew very little about the post office apart from the fact that yes, it's pretty much owned by the government. So it's fairly secure. Um, and there was the retail side. And you get the opportunity, don't you, with the shop side, the retail side, you get the opportunity to do what you want with that. Absolutely. But yeah, with regards to the post office, you know, you have to do things a certain way. What was the training like? Very brief. Post offices offer numerous different services. And what we ended up doing was we ended up employing the previous sub-postmistress. Sub-postmistress. The sub-postmistress is essentially who has the contract with the post office and is ultimately responsible for running off the post office. So Sarah was the sub-postmistress and I was managing the business. There was a lot to learn to begin with, a lot to absorb. And obviously he was looking to the previous sub-postmistress to help him with a lot of the stuff. It was December time, so a lot of people were using the post office more than usual. So many different things from selling stamps, sending packages, foreign currency. There's lots of banking. Um, we had lots of small businesses around us and they would come to us for banking, benefits. And then again, just to get the hang of all these different services was, was a huge ask. Yeah, so when you said the training was brief, I mean, actually in days, do you remember how long it was? I think it may have been two days. Because you're really young as well at this point. I mean, yes. you're young to have that job, really. We were both very young. So Sarah and I, I was in my early 20s and so was Sarah. So very, very young. I had confidence and I had managed business before. I had worked my way up, whether it be retail or whatever, but I, I knew I was a hard worker. When I was working for Sarah's dad, I think essentially why he'd, he'd agreed for her to marry me is because he knew I was a hardworking, honest person. The plan was for me and Sarah to run the business together, but that didn't quite work out. We found out that Sarah was expecting and she started to feel very unwell. I didn't realise at the time I had other health issues which they, the doctors weren't aware of my mental health too, to the point where I started feeling suicidal. So I couldn't understand what brought that on. Um, I'd been pregnant before, but this just time, this time it just felt different. And obviously not having him there and his support was putting a lot of pressure on me. We used to balance on a weekly basis on a Wednesday. When we balance or tried to balance, things were not going according to plan and there was always like you know uh, some some kind of a, uh, either a short shortfall or, or surplus so the cash that you had in the till wasn't the same as what the computer was telling you you'd taken so it's not just the cash we count it's literally every single thing from the stamps to every penny you have and it has to to balance it has to match the post office have an it system called the horizon Horizon. Yes. So that's the system which is being used uh, in the post offices. Uh, at the time, it was a fairly new system. Oh, it's a bit like if, if you're in the city, you have a Bloomberg monitor, right? If you run a post office, you have Horizon. You don't have any choice about that. It's just there. We didn't install anything new. This was an existing system which was already there. I mean, initially, it was just a few pounds. Uh, so it wasn't a big deal. Made it good. As time went on, uh, it became more frequent. It was not just a few pounds. 
I was having to put a lot more money in. How much money? Sometimes it could be tens of pounds. Sometimes it could be hundreds of pounds. Um, so I was basically taking money from my retail side of the business and making this money good. And that's, I mean, if it's hundreds of pounds, that's, I mean, there's a profit margins for a shop selling stationery and newspapers. That's a lot of money, isn't it? It is a lot of money. And it was all adding up very, very quickly. And then it got to the point where we didn't have much in the shop. Then I was getting a lot of it off my father and borrowing your family members to put back. But sometimes it could be 500, sometimes it could be 700, it might be 1,200. My husband was on the phone to the helpline, which was not helpful whatsoever. I used to dread Wednesday because I knew I'm going to be here for a long time, potentially. And I just used to hope that everything was going to be okay. Because if we would close and then I would start counting, I would get on the phone to the helpline and receive absolutely no help whatsoever. So I'd be like, uh, I have a shortfall. I can understand how can you, are you able to help? And, and literally I was getting no, no support, no advice, no guidance. And the impression we were given every time was you are the only post office having this problem. That was something I was told numerous times that, oh, it's just this post office having these issues because nobody else seems to be having these problems. The only thing they would say is, okay, you can make it good and hopefully receive something uh, in shape of uh, an error notice and that would hopefully rectify the situation. So he wouldn't come home till maybe 10 o'clock at night, gone at maybe 7 o'clock in the morning. I had no idea this was becoming a bigger, bigger problem. And I don't think my husband... Though he was telling me, I don't think, I don't think we both realised, to be honest. Maybe he realised, okay, it's getting a bit much now. But I don't think we realised what a big problem it was going to become. That's when I started sort of feeling, this is a huge, huge responsibility on my shoulders. Sarah's dad has invested a lot of money, has given us a lot of money. Sarah had to sell a flat which she invested in this business. We have a loan, we have a house, which is dependent on this income. That's when I really started to feel the pressure. And obviously I was getting angry with him because I felt like, you know, I was now at home with two kids and he was there all hours. Um, It was putting a strain on our marriage. So at times I used to dread coming home in a way because I knew I'm just going to leave one problem and then I'm going to go home and there's going to be something else waiting for me and she's going to... It was very, very difficult. I had to be supportive, but it was very, very difficult to be strong enough to support Sarah during that time. We at times had arguments just so I could go to work because she would not want me to leave her uh, first thing in the morning. And as I was spending a long time, a lot of hours at the post office, she was becoming suspicious at times and wondering why am I spending so many hours in the post office and why am I staying there until so late after closing times and whatever have you. Because I didn't really tell her the full extent of problems at the post office just to basically protect her uh, while she was not very well. Did you have anyone to talk to about it? Um, Thinking back, no, I didn't actually. I kept things to myself. I just dealt with it somehow. Uh, and just hoping that things will will work out. I just kept looking forward to the receiving the error notice, which never turned up. 
we were now running out of funds to put back into the post office and we realized we can't be doing this forever so we need to somehow sell it and get rid of it I'd taken everything I possibly could of you know all, all the family members that were helping and it was coming to the point where you just couldn't ask anymore and then there came a day when the audit happened I was at home in bed and my husband called me and he said to me, the auditors are here. And I said to him, don't worry, I'm coming because I'm the sub-postmistress, so I should be there. I dropped my kids off and I went to the business and they were in their count, well, they, I think they had just finished counting the money. And he said to me, they're saying we're 20,000 plus short. I said, well, maybe they haven't counted properly. Maybe they're missing something. And he said to me, well, no, that's what they're saying. And 20 odd short doesn't make sense. And this is in addition to the money that you know that you've made up. Yeah, so this is on top of the money that we've been putting in. So you can presume therefore that actually there's more than 30 grand that should be in the post office accounts that isn't. The next thing that auditors wanted to do was go to my house. Did you have an option? I didn't have anything to hide. So I said, fine, I can take you home now. They went through all the bedrooms. I had a table full of all the paperwork. They went through all of that. And they said to me, we can't find a thing. Maybe for a good few weeks, we weren't allowed back in. Into your own post office? Into your own post office. We had to get someone else to run it. Did the customers notice? There must have, and I think it even came up on the local newspaper. At this point, we, I was suspended, because I was a sub-postmistress, I was suspended. We went for a meeting where I explained what was going on, and they wouldn't have it. They said no, they were going to terminate the contract. My dad said to me, look, we can pay the 25 grand, that's not a problem. But the thing is, we haven't, you haven't taken it, so by paying it, it just makes you look guilty. So don't pay it, let's fight this. And then there was um, a federation of the postmasters. And um, I remember calling them. The guy I spoke to on the phone said to me, oh, don't worry. He wasn't alarmed that there was a shortfall. All he was saying, don't you worry about this. We'll get this sorted. And I can recommend a very good solicitor. And he goes, because you're going to need one. I was just shocked because I was thinking, what? His words were, she is a bitch, but she will fight your corner. Well, she basically said to us that, firstly, for 25 grand, you're just going to get a slap on the wrist. And she said, but you just have to decide between the both of you who's going to take the blame. And if I was you, I would just say, you're guilty, plead guilty. And my husband said, well, we haven't taken the money, so why should we be pleading guilty? She goes, because if you try and fight it, it can come back and, and you might get a sentence or something. So it's best just to plead guilty, get a slap on the wrist, and then hopefully that'll be the end of that. A sentence? Yeah. A prison sentence? Yes. Had that even occurred to you? No. Who would be putting you in prison? I mean, who? how does it... Post office. Like, the post office. So the post office, they do their own investigations. They don't refer cases for C- to CPS or the police. But they go to court? 
They go to court, but they don't have to go to court via CPS. So they do their own investigations, essentially. So you could have ended up with a criminal record because of an investigation by the company that claims you've defrauded them. Absolutely. Totally bizarre, but that's how the post office do things. I don't know, it just felt like unbelievable. Like, how can, how can you be right and then people be talking about what they're going to do to you for things that you haven't even done? Do you know what I mean? Like, take the, take the money. We hadn't taken the money, so how can we be, be punished for something we haven't done? It just didn't make no sense to me. I remember going back home and talking to my husband about it, and he was saying to me, look, you know, you've been busy, your health has been playing up and everything, and it's too much for you. I'm just going to take the blame. By this stage, I was suffering with depression myself. Uh, so my mental health wasn't great. So I don't think I was really taking in a lot of this information because mentally I just, I'd had enough. You probably wanted a conclusion, whatever it was, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I was on medication, you know, I was having panic attacks, I was having anxiety. Um, All triggered by your experience of dealing with the post office. Absolutely, yeah. Because, I mean, you know, as time went on and on and on, my mental, my mental health just deteriorated. Had I not trusted my husband, or had he not told me the bits that were happening, um, maybe I would have doubted. I would have doubted him. But me and him had that kind of relationship. Even when he wasn't working for my father, or even when he was working, um, you know, his wages would come into the account. He would say to me, oh, you know, you write out the checks for the bills and stuff. Like, we're quite open with money. So I knew that there was nothing that was hidden from me. I really trusted him. It's funny, just the night before the court date, we went for a drive. Because sometimes my older son wouldn't sleep, so we'd go for a drive, just try and get him off to sleep. And I said, to, I said to my husband, I said, are you worried about tomorrow? And he goes to me, not really, it's going to be fine. Because if we do what we, we've been told, we'll be fine. On the day of the court, um, I remember getting up early. I remember me and my husband having breakfast and he was, you know, he was running late. And my dad said to me, um, it's okay, I'll go with him. And, you know, you just stay home with the kids and I'll go with him and then we'll just come back. You know, he had his breakfast and left it halfway. And then my dad came and then I dropped them, I think, to the station. He hugged me and kissed me and said, I'll see you in a few hours. And that was that. I'd gone to my aunt's house, which wasn't very far from my father's office, which I knew that's where they were going to come back to. And my kids were just playing with her kids. And I was just sitting there reading a magazine and I was thinking, they're taking a long time. Eventually there was a knock on the door and then a cousin of mine and another aunt had just walked in and I'd never seen that kind of look on their face before. And I remember my cousin, that's like my sister, broke, like broke down and I couldn't understand why she was crying. And then she said to me, Ali's gone to prison. I just felt like all of a sudden, oh, I can't explain it. It just felt like my whole life had just been turned upside down. And then I heard my dad just got to the office. And I remember running to the office. It was only down the road, but I remember running up those stairs and I opened my dad's office door and my dad just standing there. 
And he said to me, Sarah, it's the first time in my life where I felt like I didn't have control. You see, when you have done something wrong, then I guess it's somewhat easy for you to accept that, okay, this is, I'm paying the price for something I've done. But when you haven't done anything wrong, when you know you have not taken any money, you haven't committed any crime, then it becomes really, really difficult. Had you had the opportunity to say anything? That's a frustrating bit. You can't say anything because you have a lawyer, you have a solicitor, or you have a barrister who's representing you. And you've pled guilty. And you've pled guilty, right, on the advice of your lawyer. Thinking back now, in hindsight, that was the, I think, the, the worst decision I made uh, in my life uh, because I should have never pleaded guilty uh, for something I hadn't done. My father-in-law, he came to the cell and I gave him my watch and my, you know, my things that I, I, I knew I could not take with me. And then when I was being transported in, in one of those vans, which has like a, a small compartment in which you sit, it has windows which you can see out from, but you can't see in. I remember I get goosebumps when I think of this, that I was thinking, this is almost like death. It's almost like I've died because, you know, I was doing normal things and I was expecting to go back and see my family again, be with my family. But all of a sudden, everything's just stopped. And I can see outside, people can't see in. Um, I'm in this confined space. That's when I felt I have lost my independence, my freedom. That's when I felt like I'm pretty much dead to the world. So the guy that had taken over the post office, I think he paid the first month's rent or maybe a couple of months rent, I don't know. And he said to me, obviously I've heard. He called me, I said, look, I've heard, I'm really sorry. And I said, yeah. And, I, and he was like, look, you know, I'll, I'll just pay, transfer the money into your account, whatever. I said, yeah, that's fine. And obviously I was mentally, I was so upset. Um, I was finding it very hard to deal with everything. And then I think it was after a couple of payments he might have made, he said to me, I called him one time, the rent wasn't in the account. And he said, oh, well, you know what? I've managed to speak to the landlord and we're sorting it out. So you don't have to worry. I'll just pay him directly. And I said, okay. I still didn't think anything of it until he once phoned and said they've changed the locks and stuff. And I thought, you know what? He's obviously struck a deal with the landlord They've basically taken over, not the, just the post office and the news agents, they've taken it over. So you no longer have any claim over that shop? No. So I was in a Cat B prison, which is a high security prison. Violent people, you know, people who have done really, really bad things. Were you scared? I was, and I'll tell you why. I was scared because the person I was sharing the cell with... He just did not seem right. So he would stay up all night and he would be doing weird things during the night and talking to himself. So he didn't seem mentally stable. And that was concerning for me. And I was like, well, this person could be anyone. He could be doing anything to me during the night. Um, did you know what he'd done criminally? I, I didn't. He, we never really engaged in a conversation. Did you go and visit Ali in prison? Were you allowed to? Yeah. I got lots of visiting orders. Did the kids? Every, no, without the kids. 
Because it would be difficult for them, like dramatic or? I think I might have taken the kids once when he was transferred to an open prison. Where did you tell them he was by this point? I said to them that he's working away from home. So it's a project he's doing, he has to live away from home. I spent my time, I just put my head down. I I, kept a low profile, did what I had to do. I had to move cells a few times. I was in a cell with a drug dealer. I was in a cell with somebody who was uh, in prison for racism or uh, common assault. And I was sharing a cell with this person and I was from an ethnic background, uh, which again was a bit risky. But, you know, um, fortunately, I didn't have any major issues apart from the fact that I was becoming more and more depressed. I was taking stronger medication while I was in prison just to cope with, uh, you know, the day to day uh, inside prison and just being uh, confined uh, to a cell for 23 hours a day. And then eventually I was moved to an open prison, which seemed a bit better and a bit more, it was easier to cope, although it was much further away for for Sarah to drive to and for come and see me. So it was difficult for her in that sense. But for me, I guess it was a bit better than being in a Cat B prison. But yeah, he came out obviously with a criminal record on tag. We weren't allowed out after seven. Did you find it difficult to imagine a next step? Yeah, I felt like the things that I originally wanted, like a home and a business. And even when I bought my home, I bought one of those new homes that you get off plan. So we saw brick by brick go up and we had the chance of like choosing the interior and everything. And I remember every night me and my husband would go past the house and say, oh, it's got to this point now, it's got to this point, we can have a moving date. And I, and that year was so great for us because we were getting the house, we were getting the business and everything that mattered to me all of a sudden, a few years later, did not matter anymore. Uh, for me then, it was about me, my husband and the kids having our health and being together. How did you get through it? How did we get through it? I think we're still getting through it. And this is how many years later now? 15? 17 years 17 later. 17 years later, yeah. You know, when we've moved out of out of that house, um, all the paperwork from the post office and stuff, we threw away. And we had to build ourselves back up again. I was looking for work, I was applying for work, and, and legally you have to declare any convictions. Um, and, and obviously no one wants to know when you, when you have a conviction, especially when it's... Uh, for theft yeah it's for theft from business isn't it yes yeah so it's almost it's it's like breach of trust and theft and you know these are massive things yeah i suppose in a way it's actually easier if you've been in a bar fight isn't it at least that's separate from your business life when you're applying for a job yes it is yes it is i remember applying to 50 plus 60 plus vacancies in one day and receiving nothing back and it was really really difficult but you did to an extent, put it past you, years went by. And then in 2015, Sarah sees an episode of Panorama. Yes. Tonight, trouble at one of our best loved institutions. I wasn't really one to watch Panorama. I think I was watching EastEnders. But all of a sudden, I think maybe a few minutes into the programme being on, I think I was just sitting in this position here. Um, the TV was on, and then I, and then all of a sudden, this woman, what she was saying, seemed like déjà vu. Like we'd already been there, we'd already experienced what she was talking about. 
But Seema says she struggled to get to grips with Horizon and couldn't understand why losses were being flagged up. When things start getting wrong, this is totally... And you don't get any help. Don't get any help. You don't get any help, and they're basically saying, oh, Mrs. Mishra, you're the only one. Everything, everybody else, we go so many other post office, everybody else doing fine. It's just your branch yeah. having a problem. What was her story? That she had a shortfall. She was in prison, she was pregnant, and they lost everything. And, and she was a sub-postmistress. She was a sub-postmistress. And at that point, I just felt like, oh my God. Like, you know, we weren't the only ones. My husband was at the gym. So there's me thinking, oh my God, who do I call? Who do I call? My brother's a lawyer, but he's in Dubai. So I quickly called him. I said, I've just watched the Panorama program. And there's this woman on there and she's telling her story, just like what happened to us. And he said to me, okay, what you need to do is try and Google some stuff and try and find out if there's some sort of company you can go to where all of these post mistresses and postmasters have gone to or there's some sort of community. And I said to him, I'm so scared to Google stuff because I even thought the the Federation was on our side and they've basically, as far as I'm concerned, dug a hole for us and gave us a solicitor who told us to plead guilty. And this is how I said, I don't trust anyone anymore. My husband came home, I told him. And I thought, you know what, let's not dig all of this up again. Let's just, let's just forget it. Yeah, you may have seen something, but let's not think too much about it. Let's not start looking into things, you know, unnecessarily. We've left in the past, just leave it there. Don't, don't dig it all up again. I mean, I understand why you'd feel like that. It's not realistic, really, is it? If you know in the back of your mind... Yeah. You went to prison for something that other people, you know, the same experience happened to them. It's always going to be there. Of course it is. Of course it is. But I didn't want her to start worrying. And, and especially with the kids now being slightly old and understanding some of these things, I thought, let's not, let's not do this to the kids, right? We've been through enough already. So I was quite reluctant to go to the meeting anyway, but Sarah convinced me to go to the meeting. When we got there, there was a whole hall full of people from different, um, different backgrounds, and I was just baffled. We told our story. All of them could relate to it because they were all in the same. I think we spent hours there. Even after the meeting had finished, a group of us just stood there and shared our stories. And it felt like we'd known these people for years and they could actually understand what we'd been through. And what had you all been through? What was the common factor? That there were huge losses and it was coming from the Horizon system that we, that we were all using. The accountancy software? Yes. So there was a flaw in the accountancy software. Yes. And the post office all along had said, that's completely legit. Yes, it's robust. And how many claimants were there, do you know? In the end, about 550. 550? And there's still more. By the time I think we went through the court case, and I believe a further 900 have come forward that have been affected by the Horizon system. How did that make you feel, that it was just a computer glitch? I mean, you must have always known that it was something like that, but to have it confirmed, it was institutionalised. Very, very angry that these people knew what was going on. What did they think all of a sudden thieves were born after, what was it, 2000 or 1999? Thieves were all born, like, I mean, you know, taking over their post office. What was, did they not join all the dots together? Did not work it out? Did they not understand what they were doing to people and people's lives? And they carried on. They carried on. 
up until the court case, I think a year ago, they were still doing the same thing, taking people to court. And the software still existed, did it? Yeah. And was still being used in post offices? Yeah. I mean, we were told we were the only people that would have had access to that computer system. But later on, we discovered people in the back office could play around with figures in our branches. So we weren't the only people that had access to our our accounts. Other people had access accounts. If they made a mistake, how do we know? They haven't been in there making mistakes. I I mean, they say that they're sorry, but I don't feel like they're sorry whatsoever. You said earlier that um, pleading guilty was the biggest mistake you ever made in your life. But I mean, have you played through the scenario of what would have happened if you pled not guilty? The post office, when they did the investigation, they went to our house, they went through anything and everything they could find. In fact, they found bills, reminders and, and so on and so forth. They could see that we didn't have any money as such sitting in the bank. Um, in fact, we had red reminders after red reminders because we are trying to put all this money into the post office and, and make things tick. The post office, having done the investigation, did not have any proof or any evidence against me that they could have used in court. So it, w- it would have been a very, very different outcome, in my opinion. And have you, have you met people who did that, who pled not guilty? Yes, so in this group, there are people who did not plead guilty, and the, the, the case was dropped. The case was absolutely dropped. We're still fighting for justice. We are still fighting for justice. We've won a couple of court cases against them where Judge Fraser has actually said that the system was not robust. And we did come to a settlement and we got a lump sum paid out. Which was what? 58 million, but was given to the investors and the law firm. We only had approximately 11 million left to divide between us. Okay, my maths isn't great, but what did that leave you with at the end? Well, it it varied for every single person, um, depending on what you've lost. So... If you've lost a lot, you'd get a portion of that back. And that portion is not not nowhere enough, what you've lost. It doesn't even cover the cash loss that you might have put into a post office. So it was thousands, but not close to what you no, lost? No, And what about Ali's sentence? I mean, when you say you're still wanting justice, I mean, in a way, you kind of want that somehow scrapped, don't you? You want course, a, yeah. a sense that he should never have gone to prison. Yeah. How do you and go about that? Well, the CCRC, which is a Criminal um, Commission Review, they've been looking at it for the last few years, but it's only now that they've concluded that these convictions weren't safe. So they've said that they've given the post office some time to, I think, put the position on this. And then what's going to happen is it's going to go to Court of Appeal and hopefully get all these criminal convictions overturned. And of course, even if you sort of get your record back, if you like, there's, again, like, what's the sense of real justice? I imagine, like, even financial compensation, if it came, wouldn't really make up for the difference of those 15 years of being stressed about it. No, but it would help. Because we lost our home, we lost our business, we lost any kind of saving we had. To this day, we cannot recover from it. So that all along, the whole point of the court cases were to clear our names... And also to put us back to the position where we were before we ever met the post office. And the post office is one of those 
trusted brands, isn't it? I think my travel insurance is with the post office. How has this experience made you feel about, I don't think it's too far to say the British establishment, because that's kind of, the post office is part of the British establishment, tied up with the Royal Mail and everything else. How do you feel about systems now? I don't trust systems. You said you didn't tell your kids until recently. How did that come about? I mean, the media did cover this. Uh, There was a second panorama program and then we were also going to court every now and then to support others and also get some support from others. So as we were going to court, things were coming out, we were discussing things and, and now they're old enough so they would ask questions and then obviously eventually we had to tell them. And yeah, now they know the, the full extent and what's happened and they can't obviously believe it, but they are hopeful that all of this will, will be sort of rectified. Ali and Sara. And that's how we left their story in 2020. So what happened next? Well, the post office scandal became more widely reported and is now often described as one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in British legal history. And as for Ali and Sarah, well, for the last three years, the story's resurfaced in the news a few times. We've occasionally reached out for an update from them, and they weren't ready. They weren't ready to speak to us. Ali said he just wasn't comfortable to talk about it again, to dredge it all back up. Until now. Ali's back on the show to fill me in on what happened next. After this. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp. In our conversations on this podcast, I always try, if I can, to put you into our interviewee's head, to experience the feelings that they felt and endure the tough things that they did, almost like you're living through their difficult moments with them. But if you've got stress or strain in your life right now, if you're pulling through a tough time if you're struggling to sleep or to think straight because you simply don't know what to do about something, you don't need to wait years to talk to a podcaster about it. You can get help right now with therapy. With over a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com man. That's betterhelp.com slash M-A-N-N. How's the last few years been? Has your conviction been overturned? So yes, my conviction has been overturned, which is excellent. Um, it was overturned in December 2020. There were six of us on mm. that particular day, and we were the first six people whose convictions had, had been overturned. And it was all six of you? All six of us, yes. And for me, this was the first time after my conviction that mm. I was walking into the court. Mm. It was not a very pleasant experience. And it, it was bringing up, you know, all those bad feelings and emotions, which I felt back in 2004, mm. when I was convicted and sent to prison. So, because the whole process is quite an endurance, isn't it? It'd been so many years, you have to talk to so many lawyers. I think from the outside, people think, well, if you're going in to clear your name, that's going to be a happy day. You're going to be feeling good. But actually, it's triggering. 
And there, there's mixed emotions. In one way, you're looking forward to it, but on the other hand, you know it's going to trigger you and you will feel uncomfortable at times and you don't know what is going to be said. And uh, yeah, so it was it was a difficult day. And so far, as we talk today in 2023, of around 700 sub-postmasters that had been convicted of fraud, just 91 have been overturned. Five of those was just two weeks ago. How, how does that make you feel? There should be more. Clearly, there there is 700 plus people who were affected by this. And every single one of them should be quashed, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if you have been following the inquiry. There's a lot of revelations in the inquiry. What was the thing that surprised you the most? There's so much. There's so many little scandals within this one big scandal. You know, you had the bonus gate scandal. You had just more recently um, the expert witness revealed that the investigators and the prosecutors were not following key aspects of the conduct code. So these are massive things. So it goes beyond the IT system. I think this scandal is not just the IT system, it's the people, right, who were making decisions, who were in charge, uh, maliciously prosecuting people, you know, and they didn't care uh, if people ended up in prison, what happened to their families and, and, and you know, how their lives were affected post-conviction and post-imprisonment. Uh, so, yeah, it, that's the most painful part for me to accept and understand. And until today, I'm sure I'm not the only one. All of the other victims uh, feel the same way. We need to understand why did this happen? How could this have happened? I mean, some people would say that one of the reasons that enabled it to happen was the ability for the post office to bring private prosecutions at all. And um, we spoke actually last month to an ex-copper who runs a private prosecution company, um, mostly against shoplifters who absolutely are guilty and they're caught red-handed and he brings private prosecutions. But they're prosecutions that the Crown Prosecution Service wouldn't bring and the police wouldn't bring because they'd let someone off with a caution. Yeah. And his argument was, well, we're filling the gap where the police don't take action and that's a good thing. But your case is an absolute glaring example of the kind of area where you think this is the stuff that has to be left to the police and the CPS. You can't have private companies prosecuting people. No, you can't. You cannot. Because it's not fair and, and it's been proven by the post office scandal that it just does not work. I was prosecuted despite the fact there was no evidence against me. You know, the investigators came to my house, they went through every single thing. They could not find any evidence of any theft, right? But somehow they still managed to prosecute me, convict me, and, and you know, in the end I was obviously um, sent to prison. Then I was released on tag and I was embarrassed to go to the mosque to pray because I had this tag around my ankle. So I was, I could not attend, you know, uh, birthday parties. I could not go to certain funerals, which were outside of London because of the curfew. Mm. So all of those things put to one side. And then after release, we lost our family home. So you've got obviously overturning your convictions as sub postmasters. You've got compensation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what about justice from the people involved corporately? So we have to wait for the inquiry to finish. Um, I think it's going to run until next year and establish exactly who are those people responsible 
who are making the decisions. Personally, I am quite skeptical about the outcome. As in, you don't think anyone will go to prison? I don't think anyone will, will be convicted. And then that's the common theme at the inquiry where, you know, they have convenient amnesia and, and they, for some reason, cannot remember certain things. But when it comes to other things, they are going into every single detail and they can remember all those small details. But when it comes to certain questions, they can't recall it conveniently. Well, it's willful blindness, it's called, isn't it, in corporate yes. terms? <laughs> when someone in a company just doesn't ask the question because they know the answer is, it's yeah. dodgy. Yes. How much time do you spend thinking about this now? It's relentless. So my mental health has suffered massively um, as a result of chronic mental health stress and, and you know anxiety and depression and, and all the other things. It's affected my physical health. So I've had some autoimmune problems as a result of this. Does that mean then that when you're lying in bed at night, even now, 20 years on, you're thinking about this? 100%. The only one good thing that's come out of my conviction being overturned is that I can speak about this. I can talk about this with my GP so I can get some support. I can talk about this with my psychiatrist openly without feeling guilt, without feeling embarrassment, without feeling like, oh, you know, they might be judging me. Mm. They might be thinking, well, hang on, no smoke without fire. Mm. You know, so that was always in the back of my mind. I mean, I have had CBT before in the mm. past. I have gone to my GP with, with mental health issues because, again, like I said, I've been suffering with this for the last 16, 17 years, if not longer. Um, but I was never comfortable talking about this. And how has it affected Sarah? So Sarah has similar challenges. Obviously, um, we've gone through this as a family. Not just me and Sarah, even the kids suffer from from anxiety. You know, they have their issues. Literally, this scandal has taken us to the breaking point, you know, in, in every way possible. Health-wise, relationships-wise, the relationships have broken down between me and Sarah at times, between me and my kids, my family, my And also sibling. your father-in-law, I wonder, because ultimately it was his idea, wasn't it? You get a post office, completely blameless, obviously. Yes. But it's cross-generational, yeah. isn't it? This family yeah. involvement. Yeah. So so there was a bit of resentment there, if I'm honest, towards him because I thought, well, this was never my plan. So perhaps I should not have listened, you know, to him, you know, at that point. But I know one thing for a fact. He gave me the right advice at the time. His intentions were good. And why would you not think that? What compensation have you had since we last spoke? I've had the interim payment. Which has caused more issues. <laughs> I'm mm. the main breadwinner. Sarah's not working anymore. So clearly my earning is not enough for us to um, make ends meet. So we were receiving some support through, not not very much, but there was some support. But after we received the interim payment, we did not qualify for that support. So we had to stop all of that. So now what's happening, what's, what has been happening since um, we received the interim payment, I am digging into that money. So that mm. money is just reducing every month. Is there more coming, though? Has the figure increased since we spoke? I think initially it was 100,000. And then they made another payment of 63,000 because they said 163 would be the minimum 
interim payment uh-huh. for people who are eligible, which again is a, is a different discussion. <laughs> doesn't help me with much because it's not a, you know an amount with which I can go and buy a house and not have well, this so much it. rent to pay every month. In the 20 years that you could have carried on owning your house, it probably Absolutely. would have gone up by more than 163,000 in value, wouldn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Exactly. And the rent I pay for the place we live in, you know, is almost double my mortgage that I was paying back then. These small payments have not helped. In fact, like I said, they are making matters worse. And I'm eating to this money. And by the time, you know, everything is settled, I will be less I will have less money to use if you know or when we decide to buy a house or, or whatever the case may be. Looking back across the whole scandal, what's the thing that makes you angry? So Oli, I, I still have this rage inside me because the scandal is still ongoing. We watch the inquiry, we look at people being forgetful conveniently but the one thing that makes me furious is when i hear about people dying i believe 63 people have died without receiving their compensation Hmm. 63 people and imagine these are like i said it doesn't affect one person it affects their families these people had families right that's the one thing which is unacceptable it has to stop some other people who were part of the group litigation, the deadline for them for compensation is August 2024. And I have already heard some talks about the possibility of extending that deadline, mm. right? To me, that's not right. I don't think the deadline should be moved. What should happen is they should put more resource into this to make things happen by 2024. Who? The post office? The post office, absolutely. Whether it's the post office, whether it's DBT, the government, whoever. I think the perpetrators are still in control. They are pulling the strings. They are telling us how things should happen. I don't think that's fair. What should happen, in my opinion, it should be, it should be an independent judge or body who takes this responsibility. Post office and the government, they naturally have to be involved in the process. But they should not be deciding. They should not be controlling it. They should be part of the process. And they should be made to comply with the process, just like everyone else. I want this whole thing to come to an end. It's not about money. You can pay me, you know, whatever amount of money. It will not do it for me. It will not do it for me. I have lost a a big chunk of my adult life suffering with this i was 26 when i was sent to prison i'm turning 46 this year it's 20 years of my you know adult life i am maybe some of the you know one of the younger Mm. ones in in the group so can you imagine people who are much older i was going to say that to you you're also really articulate you know you're someone who i can imagine can cope with a legal letter even if it is very stressful in terms of understanding what it means and discussing it and thinking about it there are people as you say who are elderly for whom english isn't their first language who have been doing this for 20 years who who aren't even the person involved they're the widow of the person involved Absolutely. it must just be incredibly it's traumatic it's awful i am living this i am going through this i am still trying to hold down a job a day job while i'm doing all of this and then 
it causes problems at home because then my behavior changes and as a result you know it starts to sort of it's, it's like a ripple effect mm. you know it starts to affect other people so i have to be mindful it can affect me at work it has already affected my progression at work so i have not been able to progress as much as i i should have and i could have because i'm bogged down with all of this but may i say one good thing because of people like you explaining what happened to you yeah. There is a wider understanding in the general public. I mean, the reason you're seeing it on social media at all is because people now understand this is one of the greatest injustices of the last hundred years in Britain. Absolutely. And that's something that it took a long time for the man in the street to get their head around. It has taken a, a very long time. Um, I still think it is not where it needs to be. It should have made front page news on every newspaper. It should have been discussed on all of the radio stations, right? Mainstream radio stations on all of the channels. That didn't happen, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, which, again, is bizarre for people like me or people who are in my position. Um, we don't understand it. But yeah, we are thankful that it has come to this point where more and more people are actually talking about this and they are asking more questions. Because there is also a misconception uh, among some people that, okay, well, it's done and dusted. People have been paid money. And because post office are very good with PR. So they, I don't know if you heard about the 600,000 figure that they came up with just recently. Again, one day before the inquiry, right? They come up with this huge, you know, statement. But it just makes them sound like, oh, they are spending so much money and they're, they're on it and they want to resolve things quickly. So it's just a PR stunt, which works, unfortunately, because people, you know, a layman would, would read that and think, wow, you know, that they are sick for some people, 600,000. And I'm not saying it's not 600,000 is a lot of money. Sounds like a lot of money. Mm. But if you've lost your family home, if you've lost your business, if you've, do you know what I mean? It's just and it just doesn't doesn't work for, for most people. What would you like listeners to do? And say directly, I mean, you have the mic. Campaign for us to hold the government accountable and support us in receiving justice. We need a lot of support from people for us to get there and get there quickly, not in three years' time or five years' time. We need this done quickly. Our massive thanks to Ali. Uh, and also to Sarah, of course, as well, or to credit their real names this time because we changed their names for the original podcast because we didn't want to harm their chances of appeal. Cam and Simer, those are their real names. And, and Cam did say after we finished recording this time, and Simer was in the background as well, that if you are interested in supporting the campaigning efforts of the victims of this scandal, then consider writing to your MP and putting the pressure on that way, because there is, after all, an election next year. Um, also, again, massive thanks to Nick Wallace, the journalist who's been covering the post office scandal tirelessly for years. It was he who first put us in touch with Simon and Cam. We've just scratched the surface. There's so much to see about this case on his website, postofficescandal.uk. Uh, and Nick also has a new investigative podcast you should check out. It's called Dirty Deeds. Right. As ever, a complete about turn up next. Your sex questions with Alex Fox. That's the foxhole. After this. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the 
must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Time for your questions of sex now. It's the Foxhole with Alex Fox. Hey, Alex. Hello, the apple kiwi and slightly overripe banana of my eye, Ollie Man. Last month you uh, regaled us with your adventures micro-lighting. I understand you've been out and about again. Yeah, this month I have mostly been shitting myself with such propulsive force that I'm surprised I didn't shoot myself directly into the centre of the sun, metaphorically. I did something that has probably scared me more than anything else in my whole life. I'm actually glad to hear this, because last month you were like, yeah, I'm an adventurer, Ollie. Yeah, I'm up for it. Yeah, anything. I'll try anything. Me, I'm mad. (laughs) So what was it? Well, I don't want to make vast claims of my own bravery, but I do think I've done things during my existence that probably would rattle other people. Like I've been uh, vacuum-packed in latex with with only a little mouth hole to breathe through. I've swum with sharks. I've flown planes and dived out of them. And, you know, all Th- these are all separate incidences, is worth pointing out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not Bond. <laughs> but what really left me with white knuckles and a Casper white face was finally completing my Paddy Open Water Scuba Diving Certification. So that's, that's I mean, deep underwater, isn't it, by the end? Only 10 metres. But the thing that really, really got me, and until this point, I had no idea that this would be such a source of terror for me, was that there was virtually zero visibility. Oh, yeah, that would have been obvious to me right from the beginning. <laughs> oh, I just, I did, literally did not see it coming. <laughs> yeah, so you don't know where the top of the water is, do you? There was this plane wreck. It was, it obviously, had not been a genuine crash. It was an, an old plane that they had sunk to the bottom of this lake for, for visual interest. And it was all covered in mollusks and clams and whatnot. We had to descend there and wait for our instructor, and then we were supposed to follow them. I found myself clinging to the side of this abandoned plane and you know that you know that um scene in jaws where the dead man's head drops through a window and the guy who's surprised by him goes (laughs) for 32 minutes straight ollie i was just going (laughs) and really really trying not to have a panic attack but you qualified i did qualify I did qualify. Are you going to be I, using that qualification? Certainly not to dive in that exactly. motherfucking cursed lake ever again. <laughs> but two metres down around Corsica or something, that'd be all right, wouldn't it? Oh, take me to the crystal clear waters of any given ocean and yeah. I will dive freely in it. Okay, time for your questions of sex. Uh, this one comes from an anonymous lady who says, I was diagnosed with vestibulodynia. Have I done a decent fist of pronouncing that? You can say vestibulodynia or vestibulodynia. Dynia, dynia, minia, minia. Let's call the whole thing off. Let's call the whole thing off, yeah. (laughs) All legitimate. Um, I was diagnosed with that over 10 years ago. And basically, any vaginal penetration is painful. My husband and I are happy to stick to oral sex and anal sex, but we'd like to start trying for a baby soon. We've tried numbing cream before, but that numbed his penis and made it impossible for him to ejaculate. He is able to finger me when I'm very wet from oral sex, so I was thinking that oral sex first would help, but I also heard that that can interfere with the pH of the sperm. This is a multifaceted question, isn't it? Um, I know there are special lubricants that help sperm rather than hinder them, so could you recommend one that's sold in France? (laughs) 
because <laughs> I live there and it's expensive to ship pre-seed here. Is pre-seed, that's one of the big brands, is it, that does that? Yes, that's a pro-conception lubricant. I okay. love that we're getting into continental and intercontinental here. Yeah, yeah exactly. So we've got a question of shipping, <laughs> a question of uh, numbed oral sex, but most importantly, I suppose, a question of vestibulodynia. So w- what is that? Vestibulodynia. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick one go pronunciation one. and stick to it. Well, first of all, you need to know what a vestibule is, which is like an antechamber or a doorway, an entranceway. And so the vestibule of uh, usually female genitalia is it's basically the doorways to Minge Mansion. It's <laughs> the area of the vulva. Oh, I get a Disney Fast Pass for that one. <laughs> It's the area of skin that's around the entrance to the vagina. uh, And it's got a few bells and whistles there. You've got the Bartholin's glands, which are responsible for uh, producing moisture and naturally lubricating that area. You've got the urethra, which is where your pee comes out of. And you've got a number of other minor glands that are related to producing various discharges. So that's your vestibule, the doorway there. So vestibulodynia is chronic pain, so pain that lasts at least three months or longer, that is characterised as either burning or stinging or even a knife-like stabbing sensation in that downstairs doorway area. Okay, because we've talked about kind of vaginal concerns before that are caused by penetrative sex but the rest of the time don't have any symptoms. But this sounds like it's not actually necessarily related or provoked by sex. It's just there all the time and therefore sex is painful. It's a localised subset of a wider problem known as vulvodynia, which is persistent, unexplained vulval pain. Now, all sorts of things can trigger vestibulodynia in the first place. It might be um, a a long-lasting case of a yeast infection that first kicks this off, that that makes the nerves jangly for some reason and hypersensitive. Sometimes it can be giving birth, it can be caused by uh, sexual assault, genetics, hormones, allergies. After vestibulodynia is established, all sorts of things can cause that pain to intensify, including things as simple as tight underwear or sitting for a prolonged period of, of time or, or weeing. Mm. And of course, any kind of stimulation or attempted penetration of the vestibule area. Just as an aside, Ollie, if you're thinking this all sounds incredibly specialised, it's estimated that around one in four female or uh, assigned female at birth people will at some point in their lives experience some form of discomfort or unexplained vulval pain. And it's likely that because people don't talk about these things, probably that figure is even higher. So this this is actually something that unfortunately affects a whole lot of people's holes. But at least in this case, they found a way around it, but not when it comes to procreation. I mean, there is there is no way to avoid penetrative sex, is there? There are ways to avoid penetrative sex to have a baby, and that may or may not be applicable in this case. For a start, there is some good news here. Um, there's not a huge amount of medical literature that concerns vulvodynia. Um, But the Vulval Pain Society, who I'd very much um, recommend checking out, have gathered quite a lot of interviews and anecdotal accounts. They found that actually some people who are vulvodynia sufferers have found that their pain has been alleviated by pregnancy and childbirth. For others, unfortunately, it got worse. Hmm. But for some people, popping out a sprog actually made the the problem resolve itself. Okay, so potentially some good news down the road. Once you get 
get so you there. still got to yeah. get on the road. <laughs> but getting there might be tricky. Um, the first thing I'd advise is going to see your doctor because there are all sorts of things that you'll want to discuss about a possible pregnancy and birth. Um, some people obviously who find any stimulation of that vestibule area painful are going to find giving birth particularly painful so they might be more inclined to opt for a cesarean but perhaps more uh, pertinent in the initial instance is the fact that this person says that they were diagnosed with this complaint over a decade ago and since then um, although we have a long way to go we have begun as a medical community to understand a lot more about gynaecological health and there might be a lot more treatments or management options that this person can try out. Things like uh, some people have had success with Botox injections. Wow. Yeah. Into the vagina. Yeah. Botox right up your chuff. Wow. Because it is a muscle relaxant, if tense muscles are in this person's case connected to this hypersensitivity of the nerves Mm. then getting the muscles to chill out can get the pain to chill out Um, similarly uh, things like TENS machines can be used anti-seizure medicines like gabapentin because Mm. they also have an effect whereby they, they, they help to dull or block nerve signals the literature on that is quite inconclusive some antidepressants can help there's even counseling that you can have that can sort of help you overcome that pain mentally and then even just simple things like the volvo pain society have loads of tips on how to make yourself feel a little bit better day to day including stuff like filling a stocking full of oatmeal and using that in the bath as kind of like a compress that can be very soothing and calming so there's all sorts of stuff to try in terms of the numbing cream that she mentions i was thinking when she got to that okay he finds it hard to ejaculate why doesn't he wear a condom and then take it off at the last minute it's the opposite of the withdrawal method that is a possibility. I'm guessing that this person has been prescribed lidocaine cream. It comes in different strengths, and what you do that is apply it to the vestibule area. Um, it has that numbing effect, and then you can go ahead and have sex. That's not a perfect solution for a lot of people because, understandably... Oh, she'll want to feel it as well, yeah, obviously exactly. in an ideal world. <laughs> I'm just saying if the goal is simply, let's get some semen into my womb... Well, The way that lidocaine works, if you allow it to sit on the tissues, Mm. it will take effect and and do its numbing work within about 10 minutes. And then you can actually wash the cream off. So she could apply it, wait for it to kick in, take a quick shower, then have sex. And in that way, there would be less lidocaine or hopefully none transferred Mm. to her partner's penis. And Mm. so it wouldn't have this numbing effect for him. It does depend on the formulation. But interestingly, some manufacturers say that you shouldn't use particular lidocaine creams with condoms because they can split them or they can they can make them a, li- a little bit more volatile to, to bursting. Um, so I guess they could just use a condom and hope that it does split. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that's something to be aware of if you are somebody who isn't looking to get pregnant. OK, so the next part of the question then, does oral sex interfere with the pH of sperm? Technically. Very technically, saliva does have the potential to hurt sperm. In real world, real life practice, it's probably very, very unlikely to have significant enough effect to stop a pregnancy. Otherwise, God knows, a lot fewer people would be getting pregnant. Well, the majority Um, of the sperm in the semen's not at the tip of the penis during oral sex, is it? So... 
unless you are somebody with a low sperm count already or right. some other fertility problem, the, inter the potential interference of saliva from oral sex with your semen if you're trying to get pregnant is not something you need to be too worried about. Now, there is an oft-quoted study that's pretty old. It's from 1982. It was born just after I was. Same um, year as E.T. It looked at the semen of 38 men which was combined with the spit of four different sample people, two women, two men. Um, interestingly, they found that the gender of the person spitting <laughs> does not uh, change the effect upon sperm whatsoever. Now, in really high concentrations, we're talking 20% saliva to 80% <laughs> sperm, there was a negative effect on sperm motility. In fact, around 12% of the sperm at these high concentrations of saliva was found to shake. It kind of made it do a little wow. wibbly wobble. Much lower concentrations of saliva, though, of the type that you might expect to find introduced to the vaginal area by oral sex, didn't affect the sperm to any were near as impactful a degree. In general, the spit's going to be on the outside. You're hoping that the semen's going to be deep inside. Yeah. Those two things are far enough away that you really don't need to worry about it. Okay, special lubricants that help sperm. What about those? Because we have talked about those before, but not specific to what can I get mail ordered to France? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, right, these are proconception lubricants. They're designed not to slow down or kill sperm and actually to help facilitate its journey in various different ways. They have a formulation that's designed to be as close to cervical mucus as possible. They have a pH that is quite uh, comfy for sperm to swim through. Some of them even have magnesium and calcium ions, which are thought to serve several purposes in keeping sperm healthy. They kind of act like nutrients they're like an all-you-can-eat banquet of sperm food basically and they also uh, have key roles in a transformative process that happens when the sperm meets the egg they help it go through certain changes that it requires to actually fertilize an egg and to burst through that egg membrane so they're good ions to have in there um pre-seed is easier to get hold of in the uk but there is actually um another Proconception lube called Conceive Plus or mm -hmm. Conceive Plus, <laughs> which, oui. <laughs> which is not only manufactured in France and therefore pretty ah, easy to get bon. your hands and your glands on, yeah, um, but it doesn't seem to be too expensive. You're looking at about 20 euros for a tube, so it's actually slightly cheaper to buy that in France than it is over here. What price a baby? <laughs> now, all of this is presuming that we do actually need a penis to penetrate a vagina at all. I had made that for presumption. A, for yes. a pregnancy to happen. That is the most common route. <laughs> yeah. But it is not the only one. In fact, there well, are Well, it's the most others. common route between a straight man and a woman in a relationship yes. trying to have a baby. I mean, uh -huh. of course we know that it's possible to be impregnated through sperm donors and stuff. But you can see why people would feel they didn't want to bring that into their relationship trying to conceive. Well, we don't have an issue with her egg or his sperm. We just have a problem with getting the two to meet because of this very painful doorway. Mm. You can bypass the penetration of the doorway in several ways. The first method is called, hilariously enough, the splash method. In theory, 
if you ejaculate on the outside of somebody's genitals, if you ejaculate on the vulva close enough in that vestibule area, then it is possible that semen will enter the body and sperm will be able to swim up the vaginal canal and reach where it's got to go to make a pregnancy without penetration ever having to happen. Okay, so that's actually probably closer to their usual bedroom experience anyway, isn't it, by the sounds of it? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a lot more hit and miss. Yes. Quite literally, depending on how your aim is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in that case, I guess, theoretically, you you might want to be a little bit more careful with the oral sex thing because you'll have more spit on the outside of the body. Mm. But it's something to try. And if you maybe combine that with knowing when you're ovulating then you could potentially get pregnant without penetration. Although I, I, I think that it could be tricky, but then, you know, they're in a tricky spot. So it's a good thing to know about. Your other options are various at-home insemination kits. Now, I do advise doing your homework on this because if you start poking and prodding yourself with syringes and probes without really knowing what you're doing, you can accidentally injure yourself or introduce an infection and that's just going to make a complicated situation worse. So do your reading before you start this. But Do what... your reading before you're breeding. <laughs> before... Excellent. <laughs> At their most basic, these involve um, usually a, a 5 or 10 mil oral syringe being inserted into the vagina via that vestibule You can also get an even slimmer oral syringe, which is about the same diameter as a drinking straw. I can't guarantee that isn't going to cause pain because it is still entering through that vestibule, but obviously it's less girthy than the average penis, so that might produce less pain. Mm. You can also get slightly pricier special kits. There's one called 2 Plus. These have got um, special bits on them, like intricately designed tips that are designed to uh, hold semen inside the body in the right place for longer. They bypass the vaginal canal completely and get the, the, the sperm right up to the cervix, which helps it skip the challenge of having to swim up that usually quite acidic channel. And presumably with those sorts of purpose-designed products as well, I mean, as I was indicating with my question, maybe some of the romance has gone. But I guess they're purpose-designed, aren't they? So that I presume the sperm stays fresher for longer. I mean, the splash method you're describing is going to be dying, isn't it, by the second? Uh, It's less a problem of it dying. It's more a problem of that journey being a little bit more, well, quite a lot more difficult. It's it's more difficult for the sperm to navigate from the outside of the body in to where it needs to be. With these kits or using an oral syringe, you're squirting it in the same way that a penis would, Mm. just using what could be a more comfortable, slimmer receptacle to do the job. I absolutely hear you that that's not as potentially romantic as how many of us imagine that beautiful coupling with you know the 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 candlelight burning and looking deep into each other's eyes and kissing but you can actually intensify the intimacy if you want there's nothing to stop your partner plunging that syringe you can still do the kissing and the hugging and the closeness. And in fact, maybe it is more romantic and more of an intimate experience. Because it's not painful. To bypass pain. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, best of luck with that. Let us know if we get another foxhole baby as a result. And if you have a question of sex or relationships in general, doesn't need to be quite as vividly gynecological as the last 10 minutes has been, (laughs) you can send it via the feedback form on our website. Remind us of the address, Alex. Fill your personal syringe and plunge it straight at (laughs) modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. 
And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It's Grant Oyston from Toronto, Canada, who says, Ollie, I've been a regular listener and frequent recommender of The Modern Man for at least six years. Yours is always the first show I open in my podcast app. You've mentioned me on a past show as a potential ambassador, but other Toronto applicants were also mentioned and none were selected. <laughs> my bad. Uh, is today my lucky day? I've just chucked 20 quid your way in case it helps. Guess what, Grant? It helped. Bribery works. I now pronounce you Manbassador for Toronto. Congratulations. Uh, if you'd like to be a Manbassador, then buy us a beer, drop us a line. Links are on our website. Until next time, our music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on November the 10th. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.